is definitely worth applauding the Lord for his greatness. Uh, Terry and I are doing some preparation for the uh, service series in June. Thank you. You're going to put up with me up here. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to share teaching time. We're actually going to um, kind of let you in on staff meeting time. And that doesn't, don't let that seem like it may be boring. It'll, it'll actually hopefully encourage you about what we do on Sunday mornings, uh, especially re- revolving around worship. And uh, part of that is we're, we're going to be answering simple questions about who we worship. And I know it's this great God, but if we don't get into Scripture and understand Him, that, that we miss out. And so it's uh, why do we worship, how do we worship, those are going to be the things that we are looking at. So answering some of those questions and having a little bit of fun through the summer series. So we're in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 20 through 23 this morning. And um, I'm excited about this. Uh, and and uh, we're going to start with a little bit of a focus on healthy Bible teaching or, or scriptural interpretation. Because I think if we don't get that, and don't let that sound dry, I'm going to use a couple big words here in a minute. Um, but it, it's, if we don't get this right, then we will miss out on the best that God has to, to teach us. So um, when we are, I'm, I think it's important for us to begin here because as we read this text, we're going to be reminded of where we've read previously a couple weeks ago before Easter, how the text revealed some specific things about the issues that the church at Colossae was facing uh, because of the Judaizers and some other people who had some kind of odd philosophical and religious beliefs that were impacting and trying to, they were, these opponents really uh, is what they are, to the true church were trying to impose some wrong things on the true church, and it was hindering the, the growth of the body. And so Paul and Timothy, as they're writing this letter to the church at Colossae, are trying to help them understand what truth is. And I think that's important for us today, and we're going to look at ultimately some practical implications of that for us today as we move through the, the um, teaching. So let me give you a couple of key ideas. First of all, if uh, when you come to a text, and this is predominantly how I try to teach, I try to teach based on exegesis and expositionally, okay? Uh, There are times that we do topical, but when you think about exegesis, exegesis means this, and it's a great word. I have one of my dog hairs floating in front of my face. How? Did y'all see that in the light? Sorry. I've swallowed bugs in here before, so it's just one of those things I learned early on. Address the distraction and then move on. So let's move on. Exegesis. It's taking what the the text truly means, no more, no less, and trying to understand that exactly. Um, The the opposite or uh, contrast to that is the word eisegesis. And that means taking my own perceptions or thoughts into the text and misapplying the truth of what that teaches. So everybody, before we read um, our scripture today, everybody turn over to Philippians. I know I had asked you to turn to Colossians, but, but hang on. Turn over to Philippians just a couple of pages earlier, and read, we're going to read uh, chapter 4, verses 11 through 14, okay? And you'll, you'll get this. This is one of those typical places that eisegesis is done consistently. You might see sports teams uh, put this uh, on a, a banner. They say this to one another. Uh, I think I've joked that my brother 
uh, we, we had this event happen. He was trying to teach his six or seven-year-old how to water ski, and he used this verse to tell his son that he could accomplish water skiing. Totally eisegesis there, okay? So let's read this together, uh, Philippians 4, 11 through 14. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So what is Paul's context here? He's saying, I want us to be content. I've been struggling, but I need us, I want to show that I've learned how to be content in whatever situation. He keeps going. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. So how many times have you heard, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, misapplied? Because what is the context? What is the exegesis of that text? It means that we are to be content with who we are in Christ. Whether we're poor, whether we're hungry, whether we're, we're abounding, whatever situation we're in, we can be content in Christ Jesus. I can do all things, whatever extreme, in Christ Jesus and find that contentment. It's not about overcoming as a team. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're going to win this battle or we're going to win this game. I, I was thinking about it. I was like, if that's the motto, maybe it's that team that needs to understand whether we win or lose, we can be content. That's appropriate application of that. Does that make sense? So perfect example of the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. So let's look at the, uh, our text for today and read this before we go to the next one. Colossians chapter 2, verses, beginning in verse 16. Therefore, underline that. If you write in your Bible, underline the therefore, because that is going to lead us into the next point. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his, his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. All right, students, I, I'm, I, I popped into the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe mode for just a second, okay? And I told everyone to underline, therefore, but I also have almost all of verse 19 underlined, okay? That is just a great, great statement that you ought to mark in your Bible. We're going to come back and spend some time on that. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to the things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So, let's look at our second point of, of proper Bible interpretation, and that is this, remember, context is king. That first word in verse 16 that says, therefore, what does it do? Talk back to me for a second this morning. Be loud. Thank you, Jeff. That was a real uh, astute scholarly answer, okay? 
It, it takes what is, was before and connects it to what is coming, okay? It says what? Context. You have to consider all the context of what is going on in the entire passage. Now, let me give you a little bit of, of history, personal history for me. I've actually had debates with someone on these very scriptures about the, the idea that, that their interpretation was that the Jewish laws are to be upheld based on this passage. And I'm like, you're missing this, dude. You're going, and, and we specifically talked about Galatians as well, which is another parallel passage. Let's actually turn over there, Galatians chapter 2, because this is going to be in, into our next uh, point as well. You already got it up there, okay? Galatians 2, uh, verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I posed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, which is basically, James is one of the representatives of the Jerusalem church coming into Antioch. And Cephas, it says, he was found eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, that being the Jews from Jerusalem, came back, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But I, when I saw their con conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He goes on. So here's the situation. Peter had had this vision on the, the, the top of the roof while he was dreaming, and the Lord revealed to him that he was supposed to declare all, that the Lord had declared all food clean, and that Peter was also to go to the Gentiles and present the gospel to them, that it was okay for this. And so here Peter is in Antioch, uh, Antioch, a Gentile area, city, and he's eating with the Gentiles, and then the Jews from Jerusalem come in, and he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa I shouldn't be doing this, I need to go back to my Jewish roots and my Jewish ways and not eat with them wrong. And Paul confronts him about his actions and calls him a hypocrite. And so in this context, Paul is saying, we should not fall prey to the Judaizers. As Gentiles, we do not practice the new moons and festivals and the Sabbath and all those things that the, the Jews were to participate in. We are free of those things. And so I had this guy debating with me and actually reversing the interpretation. He was saying that, that I, as a believer, should be upholding all those things. And I was like, we're applying, and I'm going to use a big word here, we're applying different hermeneutics. That is the, the, basically the teaching of how we interpret Scripture. Okay? And thus, what we see in context of Colossians related to Galatians is Scripture interprets Scripture. Especially when you have a difficult passage, what do you want to do? You want to go to a more simple passage and see how those things relate because Scripture interprets Scripture. Now, I've got something to give away. I've got two books here that I want to give away to, to two of you, whoever you are. But here's the caveat. I want you to make sure before I give them away that you're going to commit to reading them. So the first two people who say, yep, I'm going to commit to reading this and raise their hands can come and get these free books. Okay, Genevieve, I saw your hand. And then, um, come on, Braden. Okay, and I'm going to apologize. Um, one of them has a little bit of highlighting. These are from the old library. Um, so, Juliana, I have a copy of it. You can borrow mine. Okay, so 
What that book is, it's Knowing a Scripture by R.C. Sproul. And in that, it's, a, it's a basically a 101 of biblical hermeneutics, how to study the Bible to get everything it's uh, worth and about. So girls, uh, I should say girl and lady, um, young lady and young lady. Um, I, <laughs> you're, you're younger than me. <laughs> you're still a young lady. Um, I hope that you will read that carefully. It's your book, okay? Underline in it. Because that is a book that you can go back to a time and time again and learn from. It is one of those that I keep on my shelf, and I've, I've literally pulled that book out um, for my next uh, seminary class because I'm taking advanced biblical hermeneutics. The name of the book, Mr. Rob Haverin, is uh, Knowing Scripture. Knowing Scripture by R.C. Sproul, who has passed away. But it's, uh, the, the thing I like about R.C. Sproul he writes very um, rich thoughts, but very pastoral. So it's great for folks that have not been to seminary um, and, and you have a high school or college education. You'll easily be able to understand his stuff, but it's very, very rich at the same time. Very, very readable. Uh, how long is that book, girls? 120 pages or something? One twenty-five. I was close. Okay, so it's not like reading a, a, a huge book like 800 pages okay which is what i get to do next semester <laughs> starting in may um, i have one book that i will only read half of because it's like 1100 pages so pray for me um so here's so, so get this and let, now let's jump back in so we've got these great principles of interpretation okay that we know that exegesis is the key we don't read into it uh, and eisegete what we think it means we say what does the text mean we need to remember that context is king and scripture interprets scripture so let's look at colossians 2 verse 16 and begin to look at what the text says for us this morning beyond just good uh, having good bible interpretation skills okay so in verse 16 therefore what is that therefore pointing back to uh, if you remember a couple weeks ago, it, it, we were looking at how in him, you can look at verse 11, you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. That is this spiritual circumcision that when we are united with Christ, we experience the death of the old man and because of who we are in Christ, because of his work of uh, grace towards us and our faith in him, right? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not your, of yourselves, okay? It is not your own doing, not by works, lest any man should boast. And I botched that a little bit, but that's the idea. It is by grace through faith, not our own works. And so in Christ, this is who we are. And look at, look at verse uh, 13 again. It says, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, him having forgiven us all our trespasses. So who are we in Christ? We are alive. We are alive in Him, not by our own doing, but because of faith, because of the work of the Spirit in us. It's an incredible truth. And it's that identity and unity in Christ. Therefore, therefore, what does that mean for us now? Because there's these opponents that are coming in and trying to trick the church into other things. So here's what he says. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food, and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. So evidently, there was a group of 
um, Jews who were coming in and saying, you've got to uphold all these things. Circumcision is essential. New moons and Sabbaths are essential if you're going to operate right in the faith because that's where Christianity came from is out of the Jewish faith. And it's interesting. Paul continually says, no, that, those things are fulfilled in Christ. Go back. Everything that you need is in Christ. Now look at what he says next, okay? I love this. He says, verse 17, These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Points right back to where we are. Context is king, right? So contextually, it's not about the, the rituals, and it's not about the circumcision. It's not about the things that pointed to Christ. It's about Christ alone being the one who is the substance of all these things. So when we're in Christ, what, what do we have? We have enough. We have enough. Do you see why when you go back to Philippians 4.13 that we referenced? In Christ, we can have all of our needs satisfied right? Because he is the substance of all that we possess in faith with him. It's amazing. And Paul is saying, hold tight. And we're going to come to this in a second, okay? So I, I think, how many of you have studied philosophy at some point in your lives? Okay, sorry. I, I, I like philosophy and don't like philosophy. If you remember, Greek philosophy deals with, um, it was Socrates, I think, that dealt with the uh, images in the cave that were uh, on the wall, and so it was the idea of the shadow and the actual object. And I think Paul is here kind of taking that Greek mindset that's influencing the church of Colossae and saying, no, 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 listen, we have the substance. So he's dealing with both the Judaizers and the argument that's to come about those who are producing a different type of religion as well. So um, what we need to do to get a little further in this, though, is we need to understand the attitude of these opponents. So let's look at verse 18. It says, let no one disqualify you. So here's what's happening. These opponents are trying to say, You're, you don't have enough. Your faith is disqualified. You, you don't have a religious experience that satisfies. You're disqualified if you don't do these things. Do you think that happens today in our culture? I see some of you nod. Absolutely. Absolutely. It may not be in the same nuances as this, but the attitude is still very pervasive that people want to disqualify us as true believers. So th that's part of the, the first issue. Now let's, let's keep going. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Now, here's, th this is um, a, a very interesting passage. And I want to try to break this down. Because when you think about someone disqualifying you, as a soccer, former soccer referee, um, I think about my responsibility on, as a, a, a referee to uphold the rules of the game probably one of the most frustrating sports that I've ever watched where someone tries to uphold the rules of the game is baseball. And if you understand what I mean, because that sport happens so fast with strike zones and balls hitting gloves on the first base, uh, other calls where hands are sliding in, 
those guys have a hard job as umpires because they're constantly making judgments. You're safe, you're out. It's a strike, it's a ball. Subtle nuances. And honestly, I hate the little red frame boxes that they put up for the strike zones now and go back. Where is it? I'm like, they're always off. And the truth is, you can't see where that ball comes through the zone with the body turn. It's like, it just, I'm like, why are they trying to analyze it this way? But here's my point. When we deal with folks that are dealing, uh, opponents to Christianity, what they're trying to do is they're trying to judge and disqualify, just like an umpire does. They want to uh, have their standard be the standard. And guess what? They're not objective enough, okay? Now, I know the, the illustration falls short completely, but you get the picture. We have an objective standard. It is the scriptures by which we should uphold and live by. That is what judges us. And here, Paul is dealing with those folks that are opponents trying to disqualify them. Now, let's look at what the attitudes of the opponents were, because I think this is key. First, they possessed a false humility that insisted their views on asceticism were requ required to be religiously right. Now, I know my teenage daughter probably does not know what the word asceticism means. Am I right? Okay. So I'm going to help us this morning, okay? So take notes. All right, good. How do you spell it? Well, it's in Scripture right there. <laughs> well, that'll help you, but I can still do it. A-S-C-E-T-I-S-M. Thanks. I got the thumbs up. <laughs> Love you, Juliana. Um, so asceticism. It is the denial of pleasure in pursuit of religious goals. Okay? So when you think about someone being an ascetic, what they're saying is, I, I want to deny myself any kind of pleasure so I can be right religiously. So you think about somebody that may think that fasting for, uh, to, to produces some kind of higher spiritual awareness is a good thing. Or especially... Um, this is a, a word that is, um, I don't, well, it's flagellation. It's, it's not flatulation, Caitlin. <laughs> flagellation, I'll spell that one for you too, Juliana. F-L-A-G-E-L-L-A-T-I-O-N. Okay, F-L-A-G-E-L-L-A-T-I-O-N. That is where you beat your body into submission. Like literally people would walk around beating themselves to, to try to raise their ability to worship, uh, to, to reach a higher understanding of God. That is what asceticism leads to. And that's what these people were, these opponents of the true gospel were saying. You need to deny yourself these things if you're going to be right before Christ. Let me go back. What does Paul say? Therefore, what do we have in Christ? Who are we in Christ? Everything is met in Christ. We have no need to do those things. Now, is there a need for obedience? Yes, okay? But it's a different motivation for that obedience, and we're going to get to that in a couple minutes. So they had this false humility that, that they possessed um, because they were insisting on these things. L listen to this. They, they believed that if you did this right, that you could worship angels, that you would actually, and look at it further, um, that you would go on in details about visions. Here's the idea. If you 
did this self-discipline enough, then you were going to experience some kind of extra understanding where an angel would reveal to you some kind of vision and you would be able to go on and on and on about the details of that, that vision and how God had met you in some miraculous way and you were special. That's what they're getting at. And, and, and look at the last part. It says, they were puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So there was this danger of this uh, pride that came in. It was actually a false humility would develop. And they would focus on the experience itself. That's what it means to be sensual in mind. That they were focused just on what they were experiencing. Not, and get this, not the truth of the gospel. How many folks in our day elevate experience over truth? And they evaluate truth based on experience. Folks, that is absolutely dangerous to the gospel. I'm not saying that experience is not valid, but truth trumps experience. And we've got to be people who come back to the truth of God's word. And we identify, yes, that experience lines up with the truth. Because how many of you have ever changed your mind? Yes, if we all got honest, all of us have changed our mind at some time. Why? Because we've realized that our experience didn't line up with the truth. So we said, ooh, I've learned something. Now, therefore, I need to change. Change my mind and, therefore, change my behavior. And, and that's what these opponents were trying to insist the, to, the, to comp, have the, the church compromise and change and say, no, you need to elevate experience. Whose ways are those ultimately? They're our enemies. Because if he can elevate experience over truth, what has he done? He undermines the gospel. He undermines our effectiveness to do ministry. Because the gospel is truth. Jesus says what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Get that? And so it's essential that we come back and we focus in on the truth. Now, um, look, look at this. Here's, here's where I think this gets so exciting to me. And, and though this is presented in a negative light to these opponents, I think there's a positive for us as we look at this. So his, his, um, Paul and Timothy's accusation is in verse 19, that they were not holding fast to the head. Guys, can I tell you this? If we just cling to Christ, things will be all right. Cling to Christ. Cling to Christ. Whatever you're facing, do what? Cling to Christ. Because if we hold fast to the head, all of everything else will line up. Because if we're clinging to Christ and we have a wrong perspective, clinging to Christ will change it. If we're, if we're in sin and we've hardened our hearts, Guess what? If we cling to Christ, He will correct us. And He will show us His grace and mercy. And we will be able to return to Him in repentance and find peace and freedom. But if we go our own way and we don't cling to Christ, we're in a mess. And we will, be, we will become deluded by our self-righteousness and our false humility and our pride. And we will be in danger just like these opponents. What they failed to do was cling to Christ. Will you cling to Christ? We cling to Christ. Now look at this. Why? 
from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If you don't cling to Christ, here's the, the implications. You won't get nourishment. <laughs> I know this is a crude analogy, but cut my head off, how's my body get food? The mouth is in the head. I mean, that's just fact. If we don't stay connected to Christ, cling to Him, we cannot be nourished as His body, individually or corporately. So clinging to Christ means that the head does what He is supposed to do, and we follow, and we are nourished. He will take care of us. We will grow. I was thinking about, look at the last part of this. It says, um, the body is nourished and then knit together through its joints and ligaments, and it grows with the growth that is from God. I, uh, Auburn basketball this, this year. <sighs> we did great, okay? Got to boast on those guys for a minute. We don't have much to be proud of. Um, and thank you for all of you Alabama fans not saying amen, Mark. Um, so, when Okiki went down with that ACL, did anybody see that play? It was nasty. You knew immediately that his knee was messed up. Here's the thing, okay? In that, he kind of tried to make it back to the tournament and support the team, but he can never make it on the court. They're wondering how he's going to do towards next season. He's a great player. But now here's the point. With that ACL tear, what is his body now focusing on? Healing, right? Because the ligaments and joints and all those things have been stretched out. If we are not associated with Christ, clinging to him tight, we focus on healing and not growth. It's, it's a focus on repair instead of maturity. That can happen in the body as we don't care for relationships well. It can happen individually if we don't stay joined to Christ. Because if we're not clinging to Christ as the head and following Him, then what happens is we step wrong, then we twist a knee, and then we're in repair mode, healing time. Instead of listening to the body and doing what He calls us to do and going into maturation mode. Does that make sense? So what do we need to do? Cling to Christ. Say it with me. What do we need to do? Cling to Christ. Cling to Christ because he is the head. He is the head of us. And it is with all wisdom that he will rule with goodness and faithfulness and justice and kindness. That's the kind of Lord, that I want to be under. Because guess what? If I'm Lord, as kind as I want to be, that's not kindness. As good as I want to be, it's not goodness measured to His. It's not full of grace. I try to steward it well, but I fail miserably. It is not with justice, because I don't really know what true justice is according to my framework and paradigm. The only justice I really know is found because God reveals it. I don't need to be the head of my life. I need to cling to Christ, my head. Are you all fired up? Okay. So, look, look at this. We're going to run through a list of things. Okay. Verse 20 says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world do you submit to the regulations? Paul and Timothy are saying, don't go back to those worldly things. Christ is to uh, supply to something greater. So don't trade the goodness of Christ in for these worldly regula regulations. And he says this, um, uh, 
I want to make sure I'm getting this right. He says further in verse, nine, uh, verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Those are those worldly regulations. And we're going to talk about this in just a moment. Legalism, okay? Legalism. So um, I want to cover these 10 things. And I think this list is, is very simple yet very profound about how to make sure that we do not fall prey to wrong teaching or religious systems. And this is going to point us into legalism. I'm going to define a little bit of that in just a moment. So let's go through these. I'm going to go pretty quickly. So avoid these kind of religious groups if it judges, excludes, or disqualifies someone based on human criteria. What is our standard? The Word of God, not my criteria, not human criteria. You know, I've often thought about this. My, my pastor at the first church I served uh, in when I was in seminary, he came from East Tennessee. We actually we had some commun- uh, common ties there. And when he came to Christ, he started serving in a church in that community that I was familiar with. And he told me about the pastor of the church. He said the pastor always wore a suit even when he mowed his grass. And he demanded that his staff mow the grass at their houses in their suits. I'm like, what in the world? Now, here's the thing. Who even invented suits? I'm like, what's the point? I mean, it's just dumb. I don't like them. I mean, I guess that's why I think they're dumb. But, I mean, I have them. I have a couple. But, but why? And why mow your grass in your suit? They're too expensive to get grass all over, for goodness sake. I, I just, human standard, human criteria, right? I mean, that's silly. I mean, if you think your legs are too skinny and white, at least just mow them jeans or something, right? Sweatpants, I don't care, but not a suit. But see, we elevate human criteria, don't we? Two, if it elevates supernatural powers, earthly authorities rather than Jesus, who has set us free from these. If you think about worshiping angels or contacting some kind of medium or something like that, that is the wrong kind of authority. Jesus alone is our authority. Three, if it panders to human pride and egocentric practices that puff one up or display arrogance for practicing its regulations. If it elevates human pride and makes you think, oh, I've done this. I'm so good at that. It is wrong to be involved in that. If it emphasizes the mystical rituals, and here's our thing, or aesthetic rigors, it is not healthy. You should not be having to to force yourself into living in some kind of denial of pleasurable things because it will elevate your ability to worship. If it attaches an emphasis on temporal things as of greatest importance. The here and now is all you need. This is where I go, the health and wealth prosperity gospel. If you give today, you'll get blessings tomorrow. Where does it really promise that in in the, the scripture? Now, I know we get blessings but it is not an if-then. It is up to God to, to give those things in his due time. It is not if-then on those, those specific things. If it replaces Christ with something else or it requires piousness to be gained by belief in certain doctrines or adherence to a rigid code of behavior, which often supersede commitment to Christ. I'm... No, I'm not going to go there. I think the the key is the rigid code of behavior. How rigid can we be as humans? Truth is very. Because we go, well, if if I get rigid, then it helps me operate rightly. 
Folks, Jesus says this, his yoke is easy. His burden is light. It is not about a rigid code of conduct. It is about freedom, freedom and joy with him. If it cuts people off from the church, the body of Christ, if you watch someone fall into some religious group and it starts to de-emphasize the body of Christ, it is wrong. Christ gave himself for who? I know us. But it says that he is the body, or the head of the body. In scripture it says that he gave himself for the church. Now I know it's not the local church, but the local church is expression of the church universal. If you are not plugged into a local church which expresses the church universal, you're wrong. And I know you're sitting here today going, well, thank goodness I'm not wrong. But then how many people deny the need for the church? They say, I don't need, I don't need that. I don't need that. They're full of hypocrites. Yeah, we are. We're all hypocrites. They're just as hypocritical for not being in the church. They need the church because Christ gave himself to be the head of the church. The church is who he purchased. All right, enough. If it pretends to offer wisdom from something other than the person of Jesus Christ and the revelation of him, according to Scripture, often their wisdom elevates self and self-actualization rather than growth in Christ. There's so many self-help books out there. Now, are they wrong? Not necessarily, but if that's all you get and that's all you rely on, that's dangerous. What I do is I read some secular business books to help me understand the, the business mindset. But I also go back to Scripture and say, how does that, the, the lens of Scripture help me see that business book? Okay? Uh, so, so there's appropriate ways to apply those things. Nine, it replaces or rejects the, now listen to this, and catch this word, the efficacy of Christ's work in every area of life. What that means is Christ's work is what makes it happen. That's the idea of efficacy, okay? And suggesting that faith is augmented by experience or spiritual agents or regimen of ritualistic or aesthetic observances. And then 10, if it is a do-it-yourself religion refusing to believe that Jesus has already accomplished all we need, Stay away from it. Stay away from it. You may think, Matt, those things aren't happening in our world today. They absolutely are. They absolutely are. And I'll even tell you this. There's a lot of churches today that look good on the surface, but the further you get into them, they start checking off some of these things. And you need to, if you were not here, I'd say, remove yourself. But here's the scary thing. You're here today, I think, under sound teaching, yet you have friends that are not here today, that are not under sound teaching. And they're being compromised in these kind of values. How you stand in the gap in good humility, taking them to the authority is key. Praying for them, standing in the gap, and letting them know that in Christ, they have all they need. In Christ, they have all they need. Go back and talk to them about the power of the gospel and the beauty of the grace of God. Don't encourage legalism. Now, here's the thing, and I think this is where we're going to get down to, like, the, hopefully the takeaways. Because here's the issue to me. If we're going to cling to Christ, but we don't want to become legalistic, what does that mean for us? Right? That's, that's like the, where the rubber meets the road question. 
And I want to summarize this, and I think Paul's going to take us here, but I don't, I don't want to leave this unanswered this week, okay? Because if you go on to look at chapter 3, he starts saying, do these things, put, on, put off these things, put on these things. And it's not about legalism, it's about if this is who you are in Christ, therefore this is how you respond to the grace of God. So here's my basic summary. This is simply making sure that Christ is your head, cling to him tightly, is simply this. It's a matter of devotion or faith. I'm sorry, let me back up. It's a matter of the devotion of faith for the whole person. Every aspect of who you are. How are you devoted to pursuing God, to pursuing Christ, to cling to him in faith? It's just devotion. It's just devotion. That, that sounds easy. But let's face it, devotion is hard to muster every day. It's hard to make sure that we're expressing that love to him every day. And it means this, that we got to pursue it with discipline. It's saying, if I'm going to cling to Christ, what does that look like? What does that look like? See, if we just ask that question and we said, oh, I'm going to respond in thankfulness, in joy. I'm clinging to Christ. It's not about the list of do's and don'ts. It's just saying, I want to cling to Christ today. So when that guy cuts me off in the Nashville traffic, oh my, I don't cuss him out. I cling to Christ. Instead of giving the middle finger, I say, hi, I want to bless you in prayer that you don't kill anyone on this road. And I cling to Christ to make sure my attitude is guarded, right? And, and I, I know that's a dumb example, but I can be selfish. Lord, I need to cling to you today because I didn't get up when my alarm went off and now I'm running behind and I don't need to be a speed demon on the road today. I need to cling to you and trust that people will gr be gracious with me if I'm late to an appointment. And if they're not, it's okay, Christ, because I'll cling to you and I will make sure that tomorrow I work harder to honor you with my time by getting up on time. And I'll cling to you. And I'll face the consequences because I'll cling to you. So if I'm reprimanded because I was late to work, I'll cling to you because I probably deserve that. I'll cling to you, Christ, because my attitude in that honors you. When that teacher seems to be uh, very, uh, what should I say, hard and obstinate about the rules and doesn't want to give you the opportunity to take another test, guess what? Maybe we should have studied harder for the first one and managed our time. And I'm speaking to myself. Okay, I'm in school. But I, I don't need to become critical of them. I need to say, thank you, Lord, their authority in my life. They're teaching me something. I cling to Christ. My attitude needs to be one of joy. And I need to submit to that authority properly. I cling to Christ. Because here's the thing. If we try to replace clinging to Christ with standards, these man-made standards, then we elevate legalism. Let me give you a couple meanings of legalism. Legalism means treating biblical standards of conduct as regulations to be kept by our own power. Now get that. So we say, hey, I'm going to do this under my own strength. That can become legalistic because we're trying to do it in our own power in order to earn God's favor. That's legalism. No, I do this to cling to Christ and make the most of Christ. I want to honor him above all else. That is not legalism. See, we can, we can think that we're being ethical and moral, but if we're doing it in our own strength, that just elevates our pride. We have to do it as unto Christ because he is our Lord. I love this statement. It's not my own, but I'm going I'm to share it with you. The moral legalist is always the elder brother of the immoral prodigal. Do you get that? The immoral, I mean, I'm sorry, the moral legalist 
the one who says, oh, I've done all these things, Dad. Why are you honoring the immoral prodigal? I've been moral. I've been legal. I, I've done everything you've asked. See, we can get so self-arrogant and prideful, right? So that's, that's the legalism we want to uh, avoid because it rejects the sovereign mercy and grace of Christ as our only means of righteousness. And the second meaning of legalism is this. Someone sets up specific requirements of conduct beyond the teaching of Scripture, wearing a suit to mow the lawn in. And you make them adhere to those uh, by means which indicates that a person is qualified for participation in things. You, you have to wear this. So let me ask you this, because we don't see suits very often in here. Let's say somebody walked into with a suit on today. How would we react? So we could become legalistic. We don't wear suits at the Grove. We can reverse it, right? Mark's here. Thanks, Mark. Stand up <laughs> as he takes the jacket off. <laughs> I feel condemned. I feel judged by Matt. <laughs> Thank you for sporting a suit today, Mark. You look nice in it. Yes, you're welcome. Anytime. You're not judging me because I don't wear them and hate them. Thank you, man. That's how brothers need to get along, right? Because the suit doesn't make that. The suit makes the man. Right? Folks, how many regulations do we elevate that are not biblical? And we, and we can reverse it. That's what I want to caution us about. So how do we become a people that makes sure that we connect communities to change lives for the sake of Christ and not the external? that's the key that's the key do not taste do not touch what does it say again I'm, I'm out of order do not handle thank you see do not handle do not taste do not touch that's what they were saying legalism legalism and, and what does Paul say about those things they are things that all just are used they perish why do we make the most of man-made things if we had an eternal perspective, how different would we be? Let me go a step further. If we had an eternal perspective on every person that we encountered and everything we dealt with, how different would we be? How do we maintain that? We cling to Christ. We cling to Christ. So this morning, I want to ask you, how are you? If you're like me, you're going to go, oh, man, there's, there's these areas. I fall into legalism. I, I think my perspective is right. I think my values are right. I, I make the most of those, and I can really, really, like, come down hard. You know where I do it the most? It's with my kids. I think my standards, the Warren standards, these are how things should be done. How many times have I held something up that's not biblical to my kids, but demanded it? Well, sometimes it's right, because it's wisdom, and it, it, it's good, produces good fruit, but sometimes it's wrong. And you know how I know it's wrong? Because I can watch them get frustrated. I can watch the Spirit of God quench their spirits as I uphold Matt's views. And it's not just us as parents. Sometimes it's us as bosses. Sometimes it's us as spouses. Sometimes it's us as kids. All of us can lean into that. So what do we do? Cling to Christ. So 
I'd ask you this morning, how are you doing? How are you doing clinging to Christ? How are you finding your joy and your thankfulness and your satisfaction in Christ? Christ alone. That's where we need to go.